And speaking of Independence Day, one of the questions that we often hear in Indonesia during that day is this question in Indonesian. Sudahkah kita merdeka? Are we truly free? Are we truly independent? Have we been liberated, truly liberated from the clutches and chains of colonialism? Now, there are many ways to try to answer this question. But one framework that I have often found to be quite interesting and useful is the framework of decoloniality. And this framework has been used in other places outside of Indonesia, like in Haiti or Argentina and many other places. And decoloniality is also different to decolonialism. It's also different to post-colonialism because yes, Indonesia is no longer colonized by the Dutch or the Japanese or any other external powers, but are we actually free from colonialism? And how should we think about that question? Sudahkah kita merdeka seriously and deeply? Our guest today, Tamara Sukota, recently successfully defended her PhD thesis in which she argues that if we were to understand the conflicts in Ambon that started in 1999, we need to read the conflict historically through a lens of decoloniality. Moreover, to be able to understand the processes of peace building after the war, we also need to look at it as decoloniality in praxis. I spoke to Tamara to help us understand what decoloniality is and what we can learn from her research to help us think deeply about that question, Sudahkah kita merdeka? My name is Tamara and right now I'm, um, I just completed my PhD at the International Institute of Social Studies of Erasmus University, Rotterdam. And my PhD was a decolonial investigation on uh, segregation and peace building in Ambon. And I looked into the connection between uh, the recent uh, 1999 to 2004 named religious wars in Ambon um, to the colonial past. So my dissertation was titled um, The Past and the Present, uh, Segregation and Relational Peace Building in Ambon. Um, I watched your PhD defense, which was amazing. And um, everyone should look it up. Um, it's available online. Um, but I want to ask you something that's not related to the content of what um, your PhD was, but something that's kind of related to decolonialism. What was it like? Was it weird for you to be studying decoloniality and theorizing about decoloniality in the Netherlands, the country that, or the, the place that, you know, largely uh, was responsible for colonization um, of Indonesia? Yes and no. Um, I mean, like in my defense, um, I said that when I was 
looking for a master um, for a program to, to continue my uh, study with a master degree. I wasn't looking at the Netherlands and actually I tried to avoid the Netherlands at all costs. And there are so many reasons that I'm not sure if they're making sense or not, but I just feel like I want to go elsewhere. I don't want to go to this place that has um, so many colonial connections with me. Um, but then I ended up in the Netherlands and having completed my research, I think it was meant to be. Um, I think it was, um, it also helped to be here to experience life in the Netherlands as a person of color coming from a former or still a colony, arguably, uh, depending on where you stand, um, and to experience life from this side. Um, and it gives me a lot of um, points to reflect on. And in the end, I think it's just right that I look into this colonial connection in my research and I was able to reflect on these questions um, from where standing on the land of, um, you know, of those who colonized the place several hundred years ago. Your study looks at the Ambon conflict that uh, started in 1999. And you're arguing that we need to have a historical lens, but also a specific historical lens, which is decolonialism or decoloniality. What does that mean to be um, trying to un to try to understand a recent conflict that happened in Indonesia um, through the lens of decoloniality? Okay, let me first break this um, word, this term. Um decolonization, decoloniality, and all those kind of things. I don't really use decolonialism because the ism changed a lot uh, from, from the word. Um, so decolonization and decoloniality. Let's go to colonization and coloniality first. So colonization is the act, the system, um, and then coloniality is the logic. So there was decolonization, right? Uh, the period or the process where the former or still arguably um, European colonizers were forced by the then situation to leave their colonies. This period um, of time ranged around the 1940s to 1960s, late 60s, early 70s perhaps. Um, that was the process of decolonization physically leaving the colonies. Now, arguably, uh, people then, well, the, the period after decolonization is then often labeled as post-colonial time because the colonial has left. Now for decolonial thinkers doers um, or decolonial thinking doing, we don't see this period as marking the end of colonization the physically leaving the colonies by the European colonizers, just physically leave the colony. They, they left the colony physically, but actually the logic, the practices, um, the discourses remain. So then we see that the colonial logic, the coloniality remains. And so the coloniality is resisting that colonial logic in many different forms. Um, and for me, reading history through this lens, I follow several decolonial elders teachers 
Um, one is, for example, uh, Jean Casimir. Jean Casimir is my uh, teacher. Um, and he wrote about the colonial history of Haiti. And there it's about reading things that are, and this is what I understood from, from, from reading, reading history from the colonial uh, perspectives, reading against the grain of, the, of colonial archives, but at the same time also reading what is not written. Um, to listen to the silences, to see the absences, and um, to pay attention to what is there, and at the same time, what was erased so that what is there can be there. In the coloniality, you have modernity, coloniality, and decoloniality. And what we see, the history of progress, is modernity. But then what we see is just the service, uh, the lighter uh, part of, of, of history. But then underneath that lighter part, there is a darker layer that is the things, the histories, the voices that are erased so that modernity can shine. So that is the coloniality. And so the coloniality in a way is to bring that, those things that are erased, those people that are erased, histories that are erased, voices that has been erased to the service to see this is the price. This is what, what was lost in order for modernity to take place. So, in my research, I was trying to bring that coloniality into the service. So if I can attempt to summarize, um, basically you're saying uh, that the conflict mm -hmm. or the war in 1999 is a continuation of not only the history of colonialism, um, but also the logic of colonialism. And what you are doing with decoloniality is uncovering hidden logic and also hidden voices um is that a good summary yes i think so um because the conflict or it's labeled as conflict i called it wars um it happens in 1999 and um it was labeled religious conflict because there were two groups on the ground muslims and christians and it was seen as religious conflict um, many on the ground at that moment already and also scholars have pointed at religious segregation. But then I was curious where this, this religious uh, segregation came from. So tracing back, um, in, uh, looking into history, there are many scholars already discussed about religious segregation in Ambon or in Maluku in general. And then it was put in place uh, very clearly under the Dutch colonial administration through conversion um, to Christianity, but also by um, deliberately privileging Christians while putting Muslims in disregards. So it creates a lot of grievances, right? Um, so then it continues um, through independence into the so-called post-colonial um, history of Maluku. Um, and then the picture might change. So before the Christians were really privileged, but once Maluku entered into the you know, Indonesian nation state, then there is a bigger relation of power where the majority of population of the country is Muslim and the Christians are minority. So you have all these tensions pulling and uh, pushing of being positioned between, in between privilege and disregard. Um, so I see that the conflict the the 1999 conflict is connected to all this colonial 
wounds, the grievances from the past that continues and exploded. And I, I just wanted to show that these are not, um, the conflict not just happened because, you know, Malukans hate each other and cannot live peacefully with each other, but there was practices, there were regulations uh, put in place in order to segregate and to make sure that these two groups see each other as, you know, threat. Can I just pick up on what you said before? Um, why is it important for you in your research that you call what happened in Ambon as a war? Because most media reports would use the word conflict, right, instead of war. Yes. Um, why is it important for you to, or how, how, why is it important for us to be using um, uh, the right words? I was looking at the definition of conflict, and one of the definition of conflict is incompatible goals. Media called um, the violence in many different ways. First is riot, kerusuhan, and I think kerusuhan is one of the most popular name. But riot implies, you know, uncontrolled violence, uncontrolled situation, and many have argued. And people's experience on the ground speaks about the fact that the violence were really controlled. It's not totally, you know, uncontrolled chaos. Um, that is one. So I decided that Kerusuhan riot is not really a good term to, re uh, to represent what's going on. Second, between war and conflict. Now, conflict is incompatible goal. It can be violent or it can be nonviolent. Um, but then... Conflict is the term that is often used when it's two groups of people, intercommunal and all those kind of things. Intercommunal violence, you use conflict. Wars, you use it for what is considered bigger incidents, you know. Um, but there was also criteria, there were criteria um, about what can be considered war, for example, in terms of the use of weaponry, um, the victims, the number of victims among certain thousands, uh, certain thousands within how many years, you know, then it can be considered war. But at the same time, I think it's a very political construction um, to one, make certain conflict bigger and make certain conflict smaller. Well, all our violent conflict, all our armed conflict. And to, to name this particular violence that took place in Ambon for, from 1999 to at least 2004 as conflict is to reduce this five years of bloodbath and to reduce the thousands of deaths and the so much loss, you know, um, physical loss and other losses to simply a case of incompatible goals. So by calling it wars, it brings all of this fact to the surface that there has been, there are, there were um, involvement of a heavy, heavy sophisticated uh, weaponry. There were thousands of deaths. There were, um, you know, uncountable um, destructions, physical destructions of the cities, of uh, people's um, livelihood and all those kind of things. And I think to, to bring that to the service, to not underplay the violence, uh, I think it, it serves to, to, to do a little bit of justice to people who experience this war. At the same time, on the ground, I think the term prang, prang is more familiar. Um, the term riot comes, karusuhan, we adopted the word karusuhan because it comes from the media. 
conflict because it, it feeds into, you know, the conflict and peace discourse that already were there during the 1990s. And is that, can I just ask whether that's also a part of the approach of decoloniality? Because the Ambon War has been written about by many people, many other people, um, you know, Indonesians, foreigners, etc. Um, is a part of a, an approach to decoloniality or the praxis of decoloniality, is that a, is a, is a part of a listening to the words that are used by people on, on the ground? I think it's very important, although I cannot say whether me choosing to use wars in the end um, represent what's going on on the ground. You know, uh, people use many different words. I decided to use this this term because of the reasons that I just mentioned. Now, is it part of decoloniality or decolonial approach? Well, one of the things in decolonial approach is to break this dichotomy of mind and body, um, rational and emotion. The Cartesian dichotomy is that, you know, academic, academia, uh, scholarly approach should be, you know, valuing or privileging the mind over body and uh, thinking over emotion. It should be cold, objective, distant. Um, now, decolonial approach started from the body, what the body went through. So it's so my research started from embodied experiences of the wars. So instead of separating mind from body, I privilege body over mind. And not privilege body over mind, but see that the thinking comes from you cannot separate body from mind. You know, like you think from your body and then you go through the conflict from the body. You reflect on the wars based on what you go through uh, with your body and also you resist through your body. And this is something um, that decolonial approach also learned from uh, Fanon, for example. Um, resisting from the body, questioning from the body because you experience racism, you experience violence through the body. Um, so the body is very important here and therefore I started from the body and when I started from the body, then I also look around to other bodies next to me and see what do they say, what do they do. So the term th uh, that they used to describe their experience. And one of the most common um, word is prang. Speaking of concepts that people use on the ground, you found that people use this concept mm -hmm. in Maluku, um, the concept of orang basudara. Um, can you talk about, about this, about orang basudara? I think perhaps you can also relate um, in a larger Indonesian context that, you know, everything, everybody's related. And I think for, for people from the Western part of the world, it's a little bit difficult that, you know, how can you be related to everybody? So Orang Basudara is, 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 um, is a concept that is very, very, it's a practical concept. It's something that people practice. And it comes from the word Basudara and Basudara comes from Sudara, Sudara, has dara inside so it's dara is blood um so dara saudara um, related by blood but then orang basudara is bigger than that it's not just about someone who's related by blood to you it's about 
a logic of relationality that you're related to each other. And, and how does that overcome or resist the logic of coloniality and the history of coloniality um, in this conflict? First of all, let's say that this relationality, uh, the fact that we are uh, related, does not necessarily mean that it's it, it's a very peaceful concept because the same the same relatedness can also be used to to to, to wage war, for example. Yeah, so so it has both sides. It's not it's not a pure um, peace building concept. You can also call for your orang sudara, for example, to help you to go through war. Now, how does this logic um, resist, let's say, uh, the logic of um, the colonial logic? Now, one of the things that the colonial or coloniality does is to separate and segregate, to classify. So to break relations, to uproot yourself. So people are uprooted, separated from their places. Uh, from nature, from the territories, and then your territories, your land, your nature is seen as something outside of you, something that you can control or you can live or you can make use of. So this is one of the uprootedness, um, this one of the separ separation. And then another logic um, and, and another uh, practice of segregation is, for example, by labeling that you're one and you're two. You're this group and you're the other group. And by making the separation, it's already laying foundation for other things to come, including conflicts and, you know. Um, so it's, it's not just segregation. The segregation is not just separation and put these two groups into two different boxes. As I said uh, earlier, conversion to Christianity creates a new group, right? And this new group um, intentionally was privileged. Um, so they were given education, they were given other facilities that the other group were not given. And because this new group shared the same religion with the colonial power, colonial master, then that alone is already enough to, to, to privilege them. Although they are not really privileged because they also have their grievances and their sufferings, but then at the same time, it already created this kind of potential um, enemies between the group that were converted into Christians and the remaining ones. So the logic of the the uh, logic and practice of the colonial is to separate and segregate. Now to call for each other and say that we are actually related. That is in itself resisting the logic of segregation by calling for the fact that we are related. So it kind of bridges the the gap that was created between these groups uh, by the colonial. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of interesting to, to hear you say that because growing up in Indonesia, I remember that one of the themes that we were told in school was that that was a part of the Dutch um, strategy, right? To uh, divide et impera, uh, divide and conquer. And it is interesting to, to hear that there are concepts that we can use and practice on to resist this the story of uh, dividing and conquering of uh, of colonialism um can you give us an example of how that works on the ground let me think <laughs> there are so many different things i think um one of the peace movements that i followed was the gerakan perempuan peduli 
the concerned women's movement. Um, one of the first initiatives on the ground that goes to the street, that went out to the street to call to stop the violence, and um, the initiators of this uh, this this initiative uh, were women, both uh, from both sides, Christians and Muslim side. At the beginning, there were. Um, women from each group already started to move um, to do something within their community. But then they wanted to call, use the, the, the bigger platform to call for peace. Um, so they started to contact, um, to lobby the government officials, for example, and other things. And at that moment, they reach out to the other group through the network of friendship. They were not very sure whether they're going to be well received by the other side, but then they trust the friendship, the, the relation that they already built throughout the years, knowing each other, growing up together, uh, having very good relation um, as friends, as relatives, or, you know, as Orang Sudara. And so they reach out through that connection and that brought them together. You know, it's, it's not that smooth, of course. There were a lot of bumps here and there. But then that one thin line, thin thread of Orang Sudara that was built throughout the years before the conflict um, managed to, to, to help them to come together. Another thing I think is that um, other peace movements also started like that. Um, you just go out to your friends, um, people that you know, your former neighbors, your former uh, colleagues, schoolmates, and say, hey, what can we do? So it started from something that is already there. It doesn't mean that they didn't, that this group didn't face each other, um, you know, during the wars. Most of the time, people who face each other, you know, in the battlefield also were the one who shake hands outside of the battlefields. So that's why, you know, it's it's not... There's no clear cut. You cannot say that, you know, these are the enemies, these are the peacemakers. They are the same people. And there is also no clear cut boundaries between conflict and peace. It's, it's always, it's a very messy process. The first example um, that you used in your answer, it's a group led by women. Um, now, we know, of course, that not all decoloniality is feminist and not all feminism is decolonial. Um, but I have been seeing, I have to say that I've been seeing some amazing movements that are centered um, around women in Indonesia, um, including some that we've covered in this podcast in Talking Indonesia. Um, the Indonesian Women Ulama Congress, for example, I did an interview um, about that. Um, and also um, there's the Indonesian School for Women's Thoughts, the Sekolah Pemikiran Perempuan. They've written a great manifesto online. When it comes to decoloniality, is this a part of, uh, let me rephrase that, is a part of decoloniality listening to more women and letting ourselves be led by women? I'm not very sure. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to, 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 to play into the idea of, you know, women are the peacemaker, men are the you know, conflict or war leaders and all this kind of things because in reality it wasn't like that among this 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 peace initiative some of the women also went to the front line of the war as warriors as fighters um these this particular uh peace initiative Grafan Perempuan Peduli is all, was also very very um privileged women elite women women who works for the government women who has position in the bureaucracy so 
they have access to many things. Um, they they were using their privileges in order to 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 call for something. They were using all the platforms that they had that other people might not have. So they're women, but they're not necessarily grassroots women. They're um, women at the highest uh, level in the province. Um, I would say that. So so then uh, that's the, the thing. But I don't want to play also into the idea that women doing everything that is good and, you know, women cannot do violence. Women are, I'm not going there. And actually, I think this is, this is, this is one of the things that you said that, you know, all, not all feminism can be decolonial and not all decolonial are, you know, feminist. Now, these women never really called themselves feminists. Um, but what they were doing is what um, what many decolonial scholars, decolonial feminists, um, Rosalba Icasa, my supervisor, and also Valiana Aguilar also mentioned um, feminism by walking together, working together, doing together. So it's not the feminism that calls for gender equality and all those kind of things, but feminism that where women come together and do something together. Uh, so although they never call themselves feminists and perhaps, well, they're very familiar with the word gender because of the whole gender mainstreaming programs in Indonesia, but they don't necessarily see themselves as, fem as feminists. Yet what they were doing is advancing a certain cause. Now, there are feminisms and there is decolonial feminism. Um, Decolonial feminism, um, introduced by Maria Lugones, the late Maria Lugones, uh, she's an Argentinian philosopher. She introduced this term decolonial feminism because she sees gender as a colonial category. So, yes, I appreciate the fact that, you know, these women take central uh, ground. And also I appreciate many other initiatives that are done by women in Indonesia uh, and beyond. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to kind of romanticize or, you know, um, the role of women and play into, it's going to be very problematic, <laughs> white feminism that calls for, you know, like women's power, women voice and women everything that, you know, you have to. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the girl boss variety, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you can only be powerful if you're this kind of feminist and that kind of feminist. And otherwise, if you don't do that, then... You're not advancing the cause. You're, you know, holding back progress and all these kind of things. I just want to be a little bit careful with that. Now, we've looked at Ambon, and uh, as I've said in the beginning of this podcast, uh, this episode, this particular episode is actually going out on the 17th of August. Um, perfect timing <laughs> to talk about colonialism and coloniality. Um, what have you learned from your research that you think can be applied to the larger context of Indonesia and Indonesian independence. Um, I think, in other words, um, how do we use decoloniality um, to think about Indonesian independence or or maybe a lack of Indonesian, independ in Indonesian well, independence? In my dissertation design seminar, um, I was presenting about this question, um, my research question and all those kind of things. And, you know, after the Dutch left, Indonesian independence, Blah, blah, blah. And then my external examiner for that uh, particular seminar, it was Professor Robbie Shilliam. And he said, yes, because independence is actually the triumph of colonialism. It struck me um, because it's true. Um, if you think about it, independence 
is a triumph of colonialism because after that, whatever happens in the country is the responsibility of the people within the boundary of the country, no longer the responsibility of the previous colonizers. So whatever happened after 1945, that means all the violence that happens after, is this a problem of Indonesia? Likewise, the conflict in Ambon in 1999 to 2004, violent conflict, the wars in Ambon, that was the problem of the Malukans. That's the problem of the fact that, you know, corrupt leaders, greedy people, and, you know, unable to live together, all the problems. And if you find, if you want to find uh, whose fault is it, uh, you either look at each other or you look at the government here, the government there, but it stops within the boundary of Indonesia. Independence is also a triumph of colonialism because it just removed the Dutch and replaced it by new elites, new Indonesian elites. Um, the oligarchs, they are still around. Um, the elites remains the elites, and you know the 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 masses remains the masses. At the same time, the whole system remains. Think about the diversity of government's uh, system or system of organizing communities prior to the European coloni colonization. There are so many different types of states, for example. But then after the decolonization, all the countries that gained their independence or that you know declared their independence enter into a system of nation state and then as a new nation state participate in a global system that involves nation states where their place as new nation states are at the lowest so it's a triumph of colonialism because it continues the system unquestioned so how how should we think about Indonesian independence? In that context, I suppose. Uh, and I mean, like, that's why for, for, for the colonial, um, the question is that, are we post-colonial? Maybe what we mean is post-Dutch colonization physically. But are we post-colonial? Then has the colonial left? But if you think about the system... The colonial hasn't really leave, has hasn't really left. It's still there. Is this the face is changed, but the system is still there. So how I think how do we understand the word independent? And um, I personally like to think about the word <sighs> liberation more than independence, but not in terms of you know liberation as a as in terms of, again, within the framework of nation state, but more as a um, sovereign people. The point of decoloniality is that to decolonize means to delink, means to delink. So after the decolonization, you have the two blocks, right? Capitalism, communism, and then the third world. So decoloniality drew foundations from the, the KTT, KTT non-block in Bandung say that, that because that's the first time all people of color, all nations of colors that are not part of this or that state their position, that they're not here or there, they're that, you know, the, the third world countries, uh, the, the non-block, not block A, not block B. 
So that started from there, the declaration that we are not part of A or B, but we are on our own. Although later on it changes. But um, that's kind of the linking, the linking from the dominant logics, um, be it capitalism or communism, and to kind of look beyond, for options beyond these systems, beyond what is visible. And that's why one of the things that we do is to basically... Jackie Alexander and also Rolando Vasquez, I believe, calls us ex excavation work to look into the past. Um, not necessarily um, to romanticize the past, not necessarily to say that to bring the past back because that's not possible. And at the same time, it doesn't mean that in the past, prior to colonialism, there are only there were good things but not bad things. But to see. To, to, to go back to the past as the source of alternatives, to be able to imagine futures otherwise. Um, right now, I think it's very, very difficult to think about other systems of organizing communities, for example, you know, nation state is the only way. But if we think about it, nation state is a very new, new system in terms of history. Um, we look at capitalism as the only way uh, to organize our economy. But again, capitalism, if you look back at human civilization as a whole, it's a very new system. But it seems that these are the only thing that we can see. Therefore, looking back to the past, to do decolonial investigations to the past, to see what has not been said so far, what has been hidden so far, why it was hidden, in order to imagine other alternatives. Can we go beyond all these frameworks of nation states, of independence or not independence? So that's those are the questions. And to decolonize in that sense, to delink from these discourses, the mainstream discourses, um, it's not necessarily mean to take yourself out of the world, you know, like living as a hermit, but just see that, okay, there are these systems, we are still part of those systems, but we can also imagine other things outside of those systems. And this is what I'm saying that, you know, that's not necessarily independence, that's more liberation, I think. <laughs> um, so, you know, speaking of liberation, decoloniality is not just about thinking, it's also about doing, it's also about, you know, practicing um, daily things. How do you think, do you have any tips for talking Indonesia listeners on how do we liberate ourselves? How do we decolonize our daily lives? Um, and how do we find liberation from the shackles of colonialism? I wish I know. <laughs> I wish I know. I mean, like, I'm still learning myself, right? Um, and I think it's not about doing something outside of ourselves and um, to think and do decolonially is more about looking within. It's, it's, I know that many people think that this is such a trendy concept. This is such a nice concept, a very easy thing, and we can easily jump into it. But at the same time, if you really want to be consistent doing and thinking decolonially, it's, it's uh, decolonially, it's, it's kind of painful because it, it does it means you have to go inside yourself first and to decolonize yourself. And that means to to peel layers by layers every part of yourself that has been colonized. And that's pretty much everything, you know. Uh, growing up um, raised by parents who go through the colonial system, who go through 
um, different wars, for example, different violence uh, regime, that that kind of intergenerational trauma that ended up resulted in how we raise our children, how we imagine their future, how we train them to be human beings. Um, that's part one, for example. And then you go to school and school is the whole, um, you know, colonial system, colonial world in in one building, let's say so. And in Indonesia, I mean, like, you know, you go through six years of elementary school and then six years of secondary schools and then university and everything that you were we were taught there the history and everything like that how much of it actually represent reality how much of it are colonial narratives and um how many other stories have been erased you know and we have been brainwashed to understand that this is the national history of indonesia so to go into into all those layers and peel them one by one to unlearn everything that we have learned that's quite a painful process because at one point you'll find yourself kind of um, floating with no foundation no ground you know and then you have to 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 find this uh, a new ground and that's that's not easy and i think it's the process of decolonizing self is something that i experience as an ending journey <laughs> like there is always something new to 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 decolonize there's always something new to reflect on and it's an ongoing learning process i suppose so it's it's the journey within rather than looking outside and say okay i'm going to change this i'm going to change that i think the first thing is to take the time to reflect and see and change yourself and i'm saying this and it's it's it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that because i think if you're busy with life if you are you have to struggle every day uh, with work in order to feed yourself and your family to take time to really reflect and and you know decolonize it's it's a little bit too much to ask but one thing that i can say is that decoloniality is the vocabulary that we use in the academia it was brought from the praxis to the academia in order to explain what people have been practicing on the ground. So many people actually in Indonesia have been practicing, have, are, are doing decolonial things, you know, uh, in transforming themselves, in transforming their communities, in making changes every day to, to make the world around them better. Most of, the, most of those, or if not all perhaps, are efforts, decolonial attempts at many things and you can see it in arts you can see it in many other things i mean like documenta 15 um, that comes from outside of the academia that's a very strong examples of um, artists on the ground um, decolonial work so decolonial are everywhere the works are everywhere by the farmers by the fishermen community everywhere it's just that you know it's a new concept within the academia well, not necessarily new, but it's still it's still a new concept within the academia. But in essence, it's a practice. So basically, just keep on doing what you're doing and find yourself and find the freedom within. Yeah, <laughs> that is a really good summary. <laughs> yeah.